As Russ will be in the book of Obadiah this morning, if you're new here, just haven't been with us on a Sunday morning when I've had the opportunity to preach, we've been going through the Minor Prophets, either a book at a time or we've been looking at a chapter or two to get a broad stroke picture of the book um, in that one or two chapters. And with this one, at the conclusion of it, we'll be halfway done, uh, sixth one, twelve Minor Prophets, halfway there. Uh, So let's pray before we get into Obadiah. Gracious Father, we thank you again for this beautiful morning that you've given your church. We pray that we would steward it well uh, this morning. That you would help us to understand your word, knowing that spiritual truths must be spiritually discerned. And so we just come to you humbly, Lord, reliant on your spirit, not just to strengthen me to speak, Lord, uh, but uh, for the congregation to hear your words and to apply them to your life. Uh, Lord, with the minor prophets, it can sometimes be hard to connect it to our lives here as um, things are being talked about directly about nations that no longer exist. Uh, But all of your word is relevant. All of your word is sufficient, Lord. All of your word is for us. And so we just ask that you would help us to receive your words well, uh, to apply the lessons we learn here, either by example or through command, Lord, and that you would guide us this morning. Uh, may I not get in, any, in, in the way of any of your words, Lord, or your truth, uh, but may you just speak through me. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you'd like to turn to Obadiah, um, we'll just get into the background context of the book. Like all of the minor prophets, Obadiah has some unique features to it. The first thing you'll probably notice is its brevity. It's one of those books where if you turn two pages, you've, been, you've missed it. It's just gone. It's in the back. Clocks in at a whopping 21 verses. Uh, this is the shortest Old Testament book. It's not the shortest book in the entire Bible. John has Obadiah beat with a couple of his books. But it's close. He's in the running. Top three. Probably the most important feature about Obadiah, which isn't a unique feature, it's shared with the book of Nahum, is that Obadiah's vision, it's directed at an enemy of Israel. Jonah, he is sent to Nineveh, but his book is mostly narrative. We don't get much of his prophecy towards Nineveh. The other minor prophets, they contain judgments against some of God's enemies and the enemies of his people. But Obadiah and Nahum, they are just straight directed at the enemies of Judah. Uh, Like, there are some words in here for Israel and Judah, but God is speaking to Edom about them. It's directed at them. He's not speaking toward his people. And so that's super interesting, because God sends his prophets, he sends them messages to deliver ultimately for his people. And Obadiah's vision, it was written down as infallible, authoritative scripture, meaning that it is for God's people for all time, and yet it's directed originally at the enemy. And so while it is directed at Edom, its message is purpose for us, its purpose for God's people. And so let's read this book, and then we'll get into the historical context so that we can understand it. And then we'll talk about the purpose before digging deeper. So beginning in verse 1 of Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, Let us rise against her for battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of, the, of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Separad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If you've never read Obadiah before this morning, you can now check that right off your list. <laughs> if nothing else, at the end of this sermon, you can say, I read an entire book of the Bible today. So as we just read, uh, the prophecy in this book, it's directed at the people, the nation of Edom. Uh, it's a judgment condemnation of them, on them, for how they have mistreated God's people. I think that's pretty just straightforward, clear reading from the text. And so who were the Edomites? We have to know that. So let's just take a quick biblical stroll uh, through Edom's history with Israel so that we can properly understand what's going on here and why they, in particular, are being called out. So the Israelites' history with Edom Begins all the way back in Genesis. If you'd like, uh, you can turn to Genesis 25. 
verses 21 to 26. It's a very famous passage. The birth of Esau and Jacob. Genesis 25, verses 21 to 26. It reads, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And then hop down to verse 30, where Esau, he sells his birthright, as we all know, to Jacob because he was hungry. And we read this, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So Edom, it sounds like the Hebrew word for red. The Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, brother, twin brother of Jacob. And so they are a twin nation. And we're going to see that as we continue on from their very beginning. And God tells them, even before their patriarchs are born, that these are two nations and how they will interact saying that the older will serve the younger. And so flash forward a little bit. Esau, he didn't care about his blessing as we saw, about the inheritance of God, and so he sold it for a stew. And then a little bit later on, Jacob, he, we know he deceives Isaac to get the blessing, and Esau, when he finds out about it, he cries, asks for a blessing for himself. And listen to Isaac's prophecy during this time in Genesis 27, verses 29 to 30. Uh, 39 to 40, this is Isaac's blessing on Esau. It's a prophecy of the future. He tells Esau, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so here's a little bit more of the picture being filled out. He's not just going to serve his brother. But one day he will break the yoke of his brother. And this is clearly not talking about Esau and Jacob as individuals because that never happens in their lifetime. It's talking about the nations that would spring from them. And so what do we know about Esau? Because his character sort of gets passed down into his nations. Well, indicative of his character is his disregard for God and his word. He, he took a couple of Hittite women as his first wives And then when he saw that Jacob was blessed to go get a wife from his mother's family, he got jealous, and so he had the bright idea, I'm going to go to my dad's brother, take a wife from there, his dad's brother being Ishmael. Took one of his daughters as another one of his wives, and so the Edomites, they were a mixed people, partly descendants of Isaac, partly descendants of Ishmael, with a bit of Hittite thrown in for good measure. And that isn't to say mixed races are bad, but when we think of those terms in the Bible, we think of religion, because that's how they were tied there. The Edomites, they were not a God-fearing people, and that sprang all the way from their patriarch. They didn't start out as a God-fearing people, and they didn't continue to be God-fearing people. 
And so fast forward over 400 years to the Exodus. Israel, they'd just been freed by the mighty hand of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, and they're making their way back to the promised land. They are now a nation. And during the 40 years of wandering at one point, Moses, he tries to lead his people through the land of Edom because it would be a more straight shot. They wouldn't have to go through the desert in the east. Uh, The land of Edom had a highway that they could travel down. And we read in Numbers 20.14 when they get to the border, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And this is the message, or the beginning of it. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardships that we have met. And so even there, it continues. Edom and Israel are brothers. Israel is coming to them, and in that instance, they're not coming to them for help. They're just coming to them for convenience. Moses relays how Yahweh has just freed them from slavery. They're looking to just pass through the land. And Moses promises them they won't eat anything, they won't drink anything. They're just here for their highway to pass through on their way to Moab, on their way to the land of their father, Isaac's blessing. But the Edomites, they'd not fallen far from the Esau tree, and so they say no. They refuse to help their brother in need, and they even send an army after them to keep them out of their land. Like their father, they are a heathen nation who doesn't care about Yahweh, they don't care about his blessings, and they certainly, certainly do not care about his people. They hated Israel. They despised them. Fast forward again to the Davidic kingdom, and just throughout that time, they are pain in Israel's side until David, he finally subjugates them around 1,000 B.C., so about 600 years after that initial meeting in the desert. And so there is the fulfillment of God's prophecy before Jacob and Esau were born. The older will serve the younger. Edom became a subject nation for about 200 years. And then Isaac's prophecy was fulfilled when Edom revolted from the rule after the splitting of the kingdom. And then they were later conquered by Judah again, revolted again, would eventually stand by, even help Babylon in the destruction of of Jerusalem and their exile of Judah in 586. And Ezekiel 35, 5, which was delivered after the exile to Babylon, it just gives a good summary statement of their relationship, or Edom's, really Edom's view of Judah, of Israel. Ezekiel writes, Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final judgment. They cherished perpetual enmity with their brother, God's people. And we'll pick this history lesson back up at the end, uh, but that's just a good base of knowledge. Edom, they hated Israel. For about a thousand years or more, Edom loved their hatred of Israel. They cherished it, despite having that family relationship. They, of all people, of all the nations on the face of the earth, they should have been the ones that were the most supportive, the ones who protected them, As the older brother, they should have been the ones to join them as the people of Yahweh united, but they didn't. And so with that background, where does Obadiah fit in? When was it written? And that's important because it's going to help us to understand the historical context that this book was delivered into, and thus understand its purpose. Well, answering that question can actually be tricky because there's nothing explicit in the text that tells us. A lot of the minor prophets, they tell us, okay, I was around when... This guy was king, this guy was king, and this guy was king, and that helps us. Because we know when those kings lived. Obadiah, he doesn't tell us that. And so we have to go by the content 
of the book, but that has its own problems because it's prophecy, and so it's talking a lot about the future, and so you have to answer the question, well, how far in the future is he talking about, and are the events in it describing some things in the past, or is he even looking forward in those things? So we have to determine that, and so as for the timing of the book, we have three main choices that are legitimate. We're not going to go too in-depth on the pros and cons for those views. I'm just going to give you them, tell you where I land. So the first view is that Obadiah is very early, possibly even as early as the, king, the, the reign of Jehoram in the mid-800s. That's when Edom revolted for the first time. And so in that view, Edom's mistreatment of Judah described in the book is their mistreatment of them when the Philistines invaded And then there's the middle view, which would put Obadiah later, after the Assyrian conquest, but before the Babylonian exile. So northern Israel's gone, Judah's still around, and here comes Obadiah before the Babylonians come. So that's between 722, 586, sometime in that range. And then lastly, some take Obadiah to be written later, after the exile, in 586, and that Edom's mistreatment of Israel is describing what they did to them during the Babylonian exile. And so out of those three options, the earlier middle options I think are best. And as for the sins, events that Obadiah is specifically referring to here, why this condemnation is coming upon them, I think it's looking back at Edom's mistreatment of Judah during the Philistine invasion. Um, and just if you'd like to know why I think that, you can just meet me in the visitor room afterwards. But saying that, that it's looking back, their sin back then is indicative of how they'll act during the exile and then even beyond to the end of the age. And so to some, just so we're all on the same page, um, Obadiah, written for Judah, to Edom, written sometime in between 722, 586, so before the Judean exile, and it's describing the coming judgment on Edom for their mistreatment and hatred of God's people with their actions during the Philistine invasion being focused on, though again, that's just representative of their perpetual enmity toward the people of God. And I think the purpose of the book is clear from that. One, it's laying down the utter destruction that is coming upon the Edomites, and thus on all nations who set themselves against God, shown in their hatred of God's people. And then two, it's giving God's people an assured hope that God has seen their misery, their suffering at the hands of their enemies, that he will avenge them, and that they will rest secure with him in his kingdom. And connecting those two things, overarching them, grounding them is Yahweh's absolute sovereignty. I think that's the major theme in this book after, or before, even before Edom's pride that gets punished. He is not just Yahweh of Israel and Judah, he is Yahweh of the nations. He is king. And because he is king, we can have the assurance that his promises and judgments will come to pass. And so that's how I've broken up the text for us this morning on your outline on the back of the bulletin. We'll see that the Lord commands the nations, he judges the nations, and he rules over the nations. And this prophecy, it's specific in that it's directed at Edom for specific sins they've done against Judah. But it's also representative of God's general rule over all the earth. And his coming judgment at Christ's return. And so that's how we can apply this text today. 
And so I know that's a long introduction, longest one I've ever done, but I think it was just necessary for us to get the, the background on who Edom is, why this is so serious. They're their brothers, and they have cherished perpetual enmity with their brothers. And so that's the backdrop that this book is, is dropped into. And so now let's get into it. The book begins the vision of Obadiah. So this is prophecy. It's true prophecy. It's direct divine revelation for God's people. And the actual declaration begins, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So thus says the Lord God, Yahweh God. It's authoritative. It's true. It will happen because it's the Lord who has declared it. This is the king making a declaration about a part of his domain. And that part is Edom. This prophecy is coming in after God had already sent several prophets to both Israel, which is now gone, and then also Judah, at least one. And so I'm sure that the Judeans hearing this prophecy for the first time are like, glad it's not about us this time. What the Lord is declaring is it begins with this report or this hearing of a report from God who has sent messengers among the nations. And the message that he sent them with is simple. It's a command and a summons. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle, her being Edom. So the king, he sent out his royal messengers to tell the nations under his dominion to get their armies together and march against one specific nation. And so as we think about this, the Lord commanding other nations to graze up their armies to go and strike another nation, how does this fit into our understanding and knowledge of God? Can God command the nations to go to war or no? Does he have that sovereign right? As God worked in the land of Canaan for the first several thousand years, bringing about his will and his plan, as we have recorded for us in the scriptures, he was doing the same thing all over the globe with every other nation on the face of the planet. Job, who lived during the time of Abraham, he lived outside of the promised land. He's the prime example of this. God's sovereignty did not stop, and it does not stop, at the fluctuating borders of the nation of Israel. Listen to Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And you might say, oh, that's Daniel. He's a Jew. Of course, he would believe that. He would think that. But how about Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35? This is from the lips of the very man that destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, stole all its wealth. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The Lord commands every nation. How he commands his nations, the nations, how he sends his messengers to them is a mystery that we're not going to know in this lifetime. Whether he's working in the thoughts and minds of the people or in the rulers, whether he uses natural disasters to weaken one nation to make them a prime target for others that surround them, 
whether he allows a weak and sinful ruler to come into power to destroy a nation from the inside, who knows? But he does do this, and we have to recognize that. It must be a part of our biblical worldview. He raises nations, and he brings them to an end. He appoints kings, he elects officials, but he only gives them a delegated authority. They can act in clear and intentional defiance to his revealed will, committing horrible, sinful, atrocious acts, but they cannot do anything outside of his secret decree, his ultimate plan that he established before the foundation of the world. It's impossible. And as his authority does not stop at the borders of Israel, it also was not stopped with the coming of the new covenant. God is just as sovereign over the nations today as he was back then. We just don't have new revelation to tell us exactly how he's working in the nations today. But he is, we can be rest assured that he is bringing about his same purposes, fulfilling his same plan throughout the entirety of the globe as he was in the Old Testament. Right now, he has authority over it all, he's directing it all, and we know that he's given all authority to Christ. And that's the foundation of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And so we have his royal seal and decree, and thus are under his authority as the king of all, to go and declare to every people and nation on the face of the planet the gospel message. We go in his authority over the authority of the nations, which is what that uh, movie, the trailer we just saw, is proclaiming as well. The Lord commands the nations, he is, and he has commanded them here in Obadiah to rise up, march against Edom. And we'll find out why in a little second. But now in verse 2, God turns directly to speak to the nation of Edom, and he says, behold. So look, pay attention. And the message is essentially, you guys are toast. And I hope you like your toast crispy, because you guys are nothing but ash. God himself is going to make them small among the nations. It, it will be in size, but Edom was never a particularly large nation, so it's being paralleled with how they'll be utterly despised. No nation is going to laud them as, as great. Every nation is going to look down on them. And that's going to be especially painful to them because, as we learn in verse 3, they were immensely prideful. They have deceived themselves. Well, how they've done this? What, what are they saying in their pride? What were their boasts? Well, they were prideful mainly in three areas and then a fourth that we'll see. But as to themselves, in three areas, they were prideful in their land and their fortifications. They were prideful in their political alliances and they were prideful in their own abilities, namely their wisdom and their strength. So first in verses 3 and 4, God starts talking about how they lived in the clefts of the rocks. They had lofty dwellings. They soared like eagles, made their nests in the stars. And this is before planes were invented. And so we, we read that and we go, well, this is all metaphor. Literally, no one makes nests in the stars. And God is definitely employing metaphor here. But what he's saying is actually not as far off reality as we might first assume or think. The nation of Edom, they, there was a nation of canyons and ravines. They literally did live high up in the cliffs. Uh, they did live in the clefts of the rocks, high up. Has anyone ever seen the documentary Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Uh, it's this fascinating story about one adventurer who goes to search for the Holy Grail. And spoiler alert for a 30-year-old movie, but he finds the grail in this cool building carved into the side of a cliff. And that's an actual place. It's called Petra in the world. It exists. You can go visit it. 
And it was once the capital of Edom. Now, I don't believe, looking into it, that Edom built that cool facade on the outside of it. But that's where they lived. They lived in these canyons, these ravines, hard to get to. You can't really march an army through it. Who's going to attack a cliff, right? And so that's what they were prideful in. Now, I didn't even have to reach for a movie reference here. It's just built right into the text. So God is good. Uh, the point is that they lived in this hard-to-attack to place. They were prideful in it. No one's getting to us. Who's going to bring us down? That was their boast. Who will bring me down to the, God, to the ground? And God answers, and he declares, I will. They make their nest in the stars, but God sits in heaven. And he laughs at all those who would think they can stay his hand. There is no fortification strong enough. There is no natural defense grand enough to even slow down God's decree, let alone stop it. So that was the first thing they're prideful in, their land. Second, in verses 5 through 7, Edom thought that they were untouchable through their political alliances. We're good with all our neighbors. No one will attack us. God first gives them a taste of the judgment coming to them in verses 5 and 6, saying, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? So the thought here is that if thieves and plunderers came and robbed your house, well, they can only carry so much. Arms are only this big. They can only get the flat screen. They have to leave the sound system behind, right? Likewise, a grape gatherer will only be able to take so much. He, will too, will leave some gleanings behind. His basket's only a big. That will not be the case in the destruction that's coming to Edom. And God even pulls out their original namesake. So this is like when your parents use your full name and you know, well, this was a good life. It's, uh, it was nice while it lasted. They're pillaged. They're going to be pillaged. Their treasures will be sought out. And it's because it will be their allies that God uses to attack them. Or at least who they thought were their allies. They were wheeling. They were dealing. They thought that things were cool between them and the nations that surrounded them. No. God is allowing those nations to deceive Edom that he might bring about their destruction. Now, knowing history, Edom in their pride, they didn't heed this warning, and they were destroyed. They trusted in their allies more than the word of God, and they were destroyed by them. And so let this be a lesson for us, because this kind of pride affects all of us. God has declared the end from the beginning, and he has revealed that his judgment is coming on all those who are covered in iniquity. Not just the nation of Edom, but every person on the planet. And the vast majority of this world does not believe him at his word, that his judgment is coming. They think they're good enough. They think their false gods will save them. They think they're in the safe and clear. And that's the pride of man. That's why we must be humbled. And we must be humbled by the message of the gospel. But Edom, they trusted in their allies. They shared their bread with them. It was all a ruse to spread this trap underneath their feet. On their diplomatic delegations, they were scoping out the land. They were noticing weak points. Okay, we can enter here. We can enter there. They don't really check over there. Here's where all their treasure is, so let's attack that. And as, again, as Obadiah is preaching, this trap is being laid, and Edom is turning a blind eye. They remained in their pride, and thus the last zinger. You have no understanding. That brings us to the third point of their pride. It's probably really stung them because they were a people that really relished their pride. If you remember from Job, one of his counselors was Eliphaz the Temanite. He came from the land of Edom. And they were supposed to be known for their wisdom. And so the same wise men who probably suggested all those alliances are being called out here. The same wise men who gave the strategic advice to kick Judah while they're down. 
called out here. God will destroy them all. And likewise, they trusted in their mighty men, their military might, and they too will all be slaughtered. What we learn from here is pride is a killer. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. No nation is untouchable. No nation is out of God's reach or operates outside of his authority. All nations and heads of state derive their authority from God and are thus expected to use that authority according to his expressed will, with a deep trust in him and his word. Any nation that trusts in their fortifications, man-made or natural, their alliances or their ability, the natural ability of their citizenry are bound to fail and fall. Edom isn't the only example of this, by the way, because God is not partial. This also struck Israel and Judah as well. Many of God's judgments against Israel and Judah were for the exact same sins. That's the sin of pride and idolatry. They trusted in themselves, their fortresses, their alliances over God. And it will be judged the same according to God's perfect standard. Now, there is a difference between God's judgment on Israel and God's judgment on Edom that we'll talk about in a second. But pride leads to destruction all around. And we know that this doesn't just apply to nations because nations are made up of individuals. And so as we reflect on Edom's national pride and how God shames Edom in every single one of those areas, what are we trusting in today? Are we trusting in our own ability? Do we think that the works of our hands can save ourselves, even a percent of our good works are good enough? Are we trusting in other people to save us? Hey, that person is telling me that they have the secret to eternal life, so I'm going to give them all my money. Are we trusting in our own inherent ability? I'm smart enough to figure this thing out. I I got it uh, to get into God's good graces. I'm going to trust my word over his. Or are we humbly, wholly, and fully trusting in God at his word? His word that says that we are not good enough, neither in our works or in ourselves. His word that says that we must repent of our sin and put our full trust in Jesus Christ who lived a righteous life and yet died that we might live. If we put our trust in others, in our pride, we will put, be put to shame and destroyed as God destroys Edom. But if we put our faith in God through Christ, then as scriptures, the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this judgment that's coming on Edom isn't coming merely because they trusted in self over God. Where that pride really manifested itself was in how they treated God's people, and particularly the people of Judah. Without batting an eye, they didn't care that they were Yahweh's people. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 8, how the Lord judges the nations. God will avenge his people. He will pay back what's done to them. In verse 10, that's just a picture of perfect justice, uh, verses 10 and 11, but... Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Here's the old name of Israel to match the old name of Edom earlier. Not only that, but God puts further emphasis on this facet of the relationship by calling them your brother Jacob. Even centuries down the line, they're still brothers. They still have this relationship. And in Deuteronomy 23, 7, Israel, they were commanded, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. So they were not to look down on, they were not to mistreat or hate the Edomites on the grounds that they were family. 
And as we think of that, do we think that God is just looking at this from one side, that he's, that only Israel should be nice to Edom on the base of their family relationship? I don't think so. Israel was to lead in this example because they were God's people. They were representatives of God's law and his standard. But God's standard doesn't change depending on its recipients. Esau had a privileged position and so did Edom. But like father, like son. The father despised God, he despised his blessings, and thus he despised the person receiving those blessings. And so did his sons. What should have been, again, Israel's staunchest, fiercest ally supporter was instead a bitter and hateful enemy who took advantage of their weaknesses. And so because of this, shame shall cover them, they shall be cut off forever. There will be no mercy given to them. These are words of finality. Destruction is coming and it will be eternal. Verses 11 to 14 then describe the specific sin of Edom against Israel that's incurring this judgment. I don't think this is just one sin, though. As I said earlier, I think it's emblematic of what Ezekiel described as their perpetual enmity against their brother. Edom pounced on Judah in their state of weakness. They were attacked. They were looted. Edom just stood by. Let's let it happen. They did nothing to help their brother. More than that, they aligned themselves with Judah's enemies and they gloated over Judah's misfortune. They even cast lots for Jerusalem. Instead of mourning, instead of coming to their aid, instead of any number of things they could have done in support, help of Israel, they they said, ha, look at you now. You thought you were over us? Well, look at you. And then God gives them several warnings of what they should do or not do in Judah's distress. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. These are both representative, I think, of Edom's actions in the past, what they actually did, and also a warning, don't don't do this. A warning from the sovereign Lord. They rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. They boasted in their distress. They were glad that this happened to them. Like the other heathen nations, they entered Judah's gates, and they looted his wealth. And then on top of this all, look at verse 14. God tells them, he warns them. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. This is how opportunistic, hateful, vile Edom was toward their brother. Cities, they're attacked throughout Judea in this invasion. Jerusalem, even treasuries are being looted. People being taken into slavery. And of course, some Judeans, they're able to escape. They run to the hills. They run down the highway thinking they're escaping the danger And they run, they try to seek safety, but what they run into is a band of Edomites on the crossroads where the people will gather, where the people are likely to go by. And they're looking for escapees. As their brothers, this encounter should have been a a relief. It should have been like if you're trying to escape a mugger, you run down a back alley and Batman's there, right? But instead, now you've run down the back alley, it's the Joker. You're done. It's even worse. They captured any escapees, not to help them, but to make a profit off of them, to sell them back to their attackees, attackers. It's utterly despicable. These are citizens. These are people in dire need. These are people running for their lives. They think they're finally in the clear. Here's a net. And then God gives them the reason why they should heed these warnings. Why shouldn't they do all these things? Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is the reason. There is coming a day of perfect justice. 
where every single evil deed will be repaid on the heads of those who, uh, who, who did them. Edom entered into Jerusalem, God's holy mountain, drunk of its riches, and as they drunk, they will drink the cup of God's wrath and vengeance until it will be as though they had never been a people at all. It won't just be them, though. God says all the nations shall drink continually. All will be wiped away under the flood of God's wrath until all other national enmity against God's people will be gone. It will cease to exist. And that is a day that is coming in our future. There's a lot of national contention, hatred toward the people of Israel today, towards God's people, uh, just in general, but specifically towards them. And it will all be done away with on this day of the Lord. As we'll see at the end, it will be because they will all be under one king and thus no longer be a threat to Israel. And so they can't because their king is in charge. And on that day, a reversal of, this, of the distress that had come upon Judah will occur under the reign of this coming king. That's verse 17. On Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. Well, why is a mountain ever called holy in the Bible? Only when the Lord is there. The Lord will be among his people. If the Lord's presence isn't there, a mountain is just a mountain, and that goes for Jerusalem as well. But on this day of judgment for the nations, God will call his people, the house of Jacob, clearly talking about ethnic Israel, back to the land where he will save them from the destruction that is coming on these nations. Not only will there be salvation for the house of Jacob, but turning back to Edom, single them out among all the nations, God declares that he will use Jacob as a means of Edom's coming destruction. Well, 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 how the turntables. Look at the names God uses in verse 18. Jacob and then Joseph. This is predicting a reunification of the two kingdoms. They'll no longer be separated. They'll, never, they'll be called back from exile. Both nations, both peoples, the full people of God are pictured here. In addition to that, God is again using the ancestral names of Jacob and Esau to highlight their status as brothers. This is why they're getting singled out. We can't separate Edom's judgment here from that backdrop. Though Edom gloated over Judah during the day of his distress, it will be God's people who will be the means of Edom's final destruction. And we get this last chilling decree from the Lord. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This is describing the end of the nation of Edom at the coming of Christ when he establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth. Now here's the difference I mentioned earlier between Edom's judgment and Israel's similar call-outs in the Bible, as well as the judgment that's coming on all the other nations on the planet that's different than how the Lord usually speaks to his people. Whenever God sent his prophets to Israel with a message of coming judgment for their sin, even when those judgments are as strong and fierce as he gives to Edom here, God is always quick to give Israel hope. I'm going to destroy you, but because I'm faithful to my promises, because I'm faithful to my covenant, because I love you, you will live. And I'm going to call you back as a remnant. You'll be smaller. You're going to go through this fire, but you will survive. And I will reconstitute you into a nation that will never be destroyed again. That doesn't happen with Edom. He doesn't give them a hope. Edom will not exist until the end of the age. Now, saying that, I don't think that when God says here that we'll, there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, that he means that the entire people group will be wiped away. 
that every Edomite is going to be wiped off the face of the planet. And I think that because of passages like Jeremiah 49, 11, where he tells the Edomites, and he clearly promises to spare those who would turn to him, the fatherless and the widows. But national Edom is done. It's gone. It's, it's, it's going to be done away with. As will every nation and national identity that sets itself up against God and his people. Because of God's mercy... He will spare and save remnants of people out of them, as he's doing right now, today, with the church and through the church all across the world. But those national identities will be eradicated in the age to come. Everyone will be united under one king, and while there may be nations within that kingdom, which I believe we get pictures of in other eschatological prophecies, but the nations as we presently know them will no longer exist. There will be a distinction, a difference between the nations now and the nations then. And that brings us to the last three verses of Obadiah's vision, this vision of this kingdom that's coming. Verses 19 to 20, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. So this is the day of the Lord. This is the same time period as the previous verses. And what these verses are picturing is the nation of God's people retaking, re-inhabiting the land that they lost after David and Solomon due to their sin. So from Gilead in the east to the land of the Philistines in the west, they'll take it. From the land of Samaria and Zarephath in the north to Mount Esau in the south, southeast, Israel will inhabit the promised land to the fulfillment of Genesis 28:14. When God promised Abraham, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's describing this. And then the vision ends with this picture of the future. Verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So it's kind of weird because it's saviors, it's plural. If it's singular, we'd like, okay, that's Jesus, but it's plural. And so who are these saviors? Well, these are people that God will use to bring about the deliverance of Israel, of his people, as Christ begins his millennial reign. And with this last verse, how this kingdom shall be the Lord's, it seems to be picturing a return to that period of Israel's history in between the conquering of the land and then the kingdom, where God was king over the land, and he appointed and raised up these judges to govern and judge his people. They will have authority in his name, but final authority will be God's alone. And so this is sort of a return to that sort of structure. Now, from our perspective, we know that this period will be different than the period of the judges, not just in that Israel won't be going their own way, they'll be obedient to the Lord, but also because we know that Christ himself in his resurrected body will be physically sitting on the throne of his father David. And he will be ruling over the kingdom from Jerusalem. That wasn't the case during the time of the judges. But not only this, but the millennial kingdom of Christ won't just be contained to the promised land, Listen to this from Zechariah. He was prophesying after the return from the exile into Babylon. Spoiler alert for when we get to Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 9. So this is looking at the exact same period of time that Obadiah is, descri- Obadiah is describing here. It's a little bit in the future from Obadiah's time. So progressive revelation. God is giving people more 
pieces of the puzzle. See what's going to happen. It's describing the millennial kingdom. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. He's talking to his people. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So right before the millennium, what this is describing is the nations of the world will rise up to attack Israel, God's people, and they will succeed in ransacking Jerusalem. They'll get a minor victory. As Obadiah said, they will drink of his holy mountain, and we know that Edom will be a part of this. As people are fleeing from Jerusalem, the Edomites will be out there looking to take them and capture them to sell them off. They will align themselves with the other nations of the world, setting themselves up against their brother Jacob one final time. But it won't last for long because Christ will then descend with his holy ones and make a swift end of them. It will be a unique day when he will subjugate the nations of the world. They will cease to exist as we know them as they come under the direct rule of Christ as his kingdom encompasses the entire planet. And that's the future. And that is assured. Throughout history, God has given us foretaste of this coming day, the coming judgment of not just Esau, but all the nations of the world that set themselves up against him and his people, and of the salvation that Christ will bring in his coming. And so coming back to that history lesson of Edom that I left unfinished earlier, right now the nation of Edom does not exist. You can check your map to fact check me. There are descendants of Esau still alive today, but shortly after Judah's destruction at the hand of the Babylonians came Edom's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, who they thought they could trust. Then in the 4th century, they were again pushed out of their territory by the Nabataeans. They moved into southern Palestine, where they became known as the Idumeans. And for a time, they were under the Maccabees, subjugated by Judah, but eventually, under the Romans, an Idumean became king of the region of Judea. That king's name was Herod the Great. The very same Herod that attempted to murder Jesus when he was born because he recognized that Jesus was the king that all the Jews were waiting for, that their bro- his brother Jacob was waiting for. And so even through to the time of Jesus, this perpetual enmity that Edom had for Jacob and Israel still existed and was still going strong. And then finally, 70 AD, the Idumeans, they had joined the Israelites in the revolt against the Roman Empire. And as we know, they were soundly defeated. Temple was burned, destroyed, even to this day. 
That wasn't the only thing destroyed to this day, though, because after that point in history, the Edomian people, the Edomites as a people group, they were scarcely heard of again, if at all. They will be heard of again when God allows them to reform their nation before the millennial reign of Christ. But as God has shown us in these foreshadowings of their final judgment, and as God has proclaimed thousands of years ago, their destruction is assured. It won't be just them, though. All the nations that continue to rebel against God and his rule, refusing to recognize the kingdom, kingship of Christ, will be destroyed. For while Christ does not yet reign physically on earth, Christ does reign and have authority over the earth today. And he calls on all people today, even through prophecies of judgment and destruction like this one, to repent of their sins and to trust in him, not just as their savior, who frees them from the bondage of sin, and from the wrath of God, but also as their Lord. Romans 10.9 is clear, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so is Christ your king today? Does your life reflect that, or are you living counter to his rule? You disregard his decrees and live as though you are part of the enemy's kingdom. As Esau lived, are you living in pride or have you humbly, by the grace of God and through the gift of faith, bent the knee to Christ? And are you expectantly awaiting the return of your Lord and Savior in the clouds, the day of Obadiah's vision, the day of Revelation eleven fifteen to 18? And we'll close just with this wonderful picture. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great, small, and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word through Obadiah. We thank you for the example of Edom, Lord, and their pride and their arrogance and how they treated your people. We ask for your grace, Lord, that we would not be like them, that we would learn their lesson through faith and trust in your holy word that judgment is coming, Lord, that Christ will return and with him will bring salvation but also judgment, Lord. And so we ask that you would save us, Lord. And if we are assured of our salvation today, that you would continue to cause us to live in a way that pleases our King, to recognize Christ's Lordship and to satisfy his decrees. Help us to do this not out of fear, Lord, but in love, in love of our Savior, in love of our King, who laid down his life for his subjects, Lord. Help us to do this, well, and I pray that you would continue to call your people to you, Lord, that you would save them from the nations, out of the nations, Lord, and that at the end of the age, um, we will all rejoice at the coming of Christ and not be ashamed at his coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.